Well, would you pray with me one more time before we begin? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be glorified in our time today. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust in Christ anew, and that our souls might be encouraged, and that our faith might be strengthened as we look at our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll go ahead and open your Bibles up to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I wonder if you guys can recall a movie that came out in 1998. It was a cartoon movie called Ants. Anyone remember this movie? Maybe you saw it. Somebody? We got some people that have seen it. So it was a, for the majority of the movie, it was a movie that follows this ant, this worker ant by the name of Z, who falls in love with another uh, ant named, by the name of Princess ba uh, Bela. Z works hard to find the favor of Bela, and, uh, but by the end of the movie, we see that the ants, anyone know where they really are? Those of you who've seen the, I heard somebody whisper over here, the ants are actually a, a part of an ant hill that's actually in the center of uh, Central Park in the heart of New York City. And so we see this uh, big story about Z that's in the place of a much larger story in the story of New York City. And so the Book of Ruth functions similar to the movie Ants. As we'll see that uh, our text today starts off with a small story about Boaz and Ruth, and it ends as the author pans out the view to a much larger view of what's happening in history about the story of redemption that centers on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we're all here today, our lives are like this as well. Our lives fit within a bigger story. It's the biggest story of all history in which God redeems a people to himself. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the book of Ruth, and we're going to see how this story fits into the bigger story, and then apply it to our story. And I pray that, you, that we would all leave here with a deep trust in God's providence, and in his goodness, and that it would bring hope about the, that God is working the grand story of redemption in all of history. So just, uh, again, open up to Ruth chapter 4, and just as a quick refresher up to, uh, of where we've been up to this point in Ruth, the story of Ruth is written in the days when the judges ruled. That means that there was a lot of crime and deception taking place. Chapter 1 begins with uh, a woman by the name of Naomi, an Israelite woman who goes to a foreign land uh, to the country called Moab. She loses her husband and her two sons, and in desperation, she and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, come back to the town of Bethlehem in search of restoration and redemption. Ruth clings to Naomi and Naomi's God in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, we see God providentially providing for Ruth as she meets Boaz, one of her redeemers. Boaz cares for Ruth and for Naomi by giving them temporary provision, but they need something more than, he can, than, than just temporary provision in the form of food. They need someone to take up the role of kinsman redeemer, someone to, re to marry Ruth and to redeem both of them. And then in chapter 3, Ruth and Naomi concoct this wild plan to basically for Ruth to go out in the middle of the night and propose to Boaz marriage. She asks, will you marry me? And to all of our surprise, Boaz responds joyfully with a, of course I will, I would love to. But the big hiccup in the plan is that there is a nearer redeemer than Boaz. And if he chooses to redeem Ruth, there's nothing Boaz can do about it. And Boaz leaves us off at the, at the end of chapter 3, saying that he is going to resolve this matter right away. And that is where we are as we jump into chapter 4. 
So again, uh, look with me at chapter 4. And the main thing that I think Ruth 4 teaches us is that God is providentially working for our good and his glory in the grand story of redemption. I'll say that one more time. God is providentially working for our good, or sorry, uh, providentially working for our good and his glory in the grand story of redemption. And we'll see our text broken down into three points. The first one being that trust that God is providentially working in verses 1 to 12. Trust that God is providentially working. Point number two, trust that God is at work for our good and his glory. Trust that God is at work for our good and his glory from verses 13 to 17. And finally, hope in the grand story of redemption. Hope in the grand story of redemption in verses 18 to 22. Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption to yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Point number one, trust that God is providentially working. 
As we just read in verses 1 and 2, we are wondering what's going to happen in the book to, or to the character of Ruth. And we see that following after his ending in chapter 3, he goes right up to the gate in verse 1 to settle this matter. The gate in, in this time period would have been the place for the center for public life. It was like the city center, and it's the place to do business. And just from the beginning, we see that in this story, God is providentially involved in the smallest of details. As Boaz goes up to the gate, the Redeemer just happens to come by at the perfect time. But just as God providentially arranged for Ruth to happen to come to Ruth's, to Boaz's field in chapter 2, so also God has providentially arranged for this Redeemer to happen to come to the gate in chapter 4. God is at work in this story, despite all the crazy twists that have, been, that have brought Ruth here. And before we go any further in seeing uh, that uh, if this Redeemer is going to be able to redeem Ruth, we should consider a little bit more of what it actually means to be a kinsman Redeemer. You can find more details about, about what it means to be a Redeemer in Deuteronomy 25 and Leviticus 25, but we'll summarize the role here. First, a re kinsman Redeemer is a kin, a kin to someone, so they are a family member. And the responsibility to act as a Redeemer would fall on the closest male relative. And this office was put in place by God to care for those, uh, those in your family who were under hard times. Second, a redeemer is someone who would purchase land from a relative who had fallen into dark times in order to keep their, their property in the lane. So there's a purchasing element to redemption. And also we see in Deuteronomy 25 that the nearest male relative was also expected to marry a childless widow in order to provide for this widow, and perpetuate the name of the dead husband by having an offspring with this woman. And so Boaz wants to take up this role as redeemer for Ruth. But again, there's a closer man. And Boaz calls out to this man in verse 1. But notice he doesn't use his name. Our English translations say that Boaz calls him friend. But multiple commentators say that the Hebrew phrase is more like Mr. So-and-so. He says, Mr. So-and-so, come and sit down here. This is kind of like when you see someone in church that you've forgotten their name, and you hit him with the, hey, brother, <laughs> or hey, sister. <laughs> yeah, you guys know, you, maybe you've done that before. So in verse 3, he begins to talk to Mr. So-and-so. Let me read for us again verses 3 and 4. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. If Ruth was a movie, the, the drums would be playing the loudest. The climactic music would be playing right at this point in verses 3 and 4 as Ruth's hope for restoration and redemption, Naomi's hope for being restored, and Boaz's promise of marriage are all going to culminate in this moment. And what does this Mr. So-and-so say? I'll do it. And at this point, I mean, everyone in the story just feels a small dagger come into their heart. It's like, oh my goodness, the air leaves the room, and we are all just wondering, we're in shock, what happened? We're left wondering why Boaz just casually offered up Naomi's land. He didn't even mention Ruth. 
Boaz just seemingly called this redeemer over with no plan, and it cost him big time. We don't know where Ruth is at at this point, but if she's out in it watching this go down, you can almost see her eyes start to immediately swell up with tears. She had put all of her hope in Boaz, all of her hope for redemption, only to see this redeemer come and take it away. And Mr. So-and-so doesn't seem to need to put much thought into this decision, does he? He's looking at the situation, and he's just looking at the, the facts, and he sees that he gets more property, and this woman who's past childbearing age who will probably not have any claim on his life or his children's inheritance, so he says, hey, seems like a good deal. I'll do it. But then look down at verse 5 with me. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now we can see that Boaz has actually got some street smarts. He knew what he was doing. He realized that Mr. So-and-so might want to redeem Naomi if, it meant that, if all that meant was buying some property and getting a woman who's past childbearing age. But Boaz made sure to save some important information for, for last. He then added that if Mr. So-and-so was to redeem Naomi, he would also be responsible to redeem Ruth. And he would be responsible to try and have an offspring with her. He saved this piece for last to make Mr. So-and-so really consider, really think about if he was going to take up his right of redemption. And when Mr. So-and-so hears this, he realizes that he doesn't, the deal doesn't sound so good anymore. He doesn't want to act out his right to be their kinsman redeemer if it comes at a negative personal cost to him. We don't know exactly what this personal cost was, but it appeared that it was too much for him to desire to redeem Ruth. So he says, I'm out. And then in verse 7, we read that if a kinsman redeemer was to not fulfill this, his role as redeemer, that he would uh, basically take off one of his sandals and give it to the person who, had the right, who now had the right to redeem this person. And that was, you can found, uh, find more about that in Deuteronomy 25, verses 7 through 10. So losing a shoe, based on Deuteronomy 25, was a sign of shame. Because it meant that this man did not take up his right to, uh, to fulfill a, uh, the, the role of kinsman and redeemer for a family member. It was a, it was a thing of shame. He would be the sandalless guy walking around town. And so Boaz gets the shoe, and now he officially has the right to redeem Ruth. You can just imagine Boaz getting the sandal for Mr. So-and-so, and he's waving it around at Ruth and cheering like, Hey, babe, I got the shoe! Let's go, I got the shoe! He is getting married to her. He's, he's won the right to redeem her. Finally, Boaz has no more obstacles to redemption. And Boaz's last words in the book are basically him saying his marriage vows in front of a whole crowd of witnesses as he promises to marry Ruth and to redeem her in verses 9 and 10. And then in verses 11 and 12, the witnesses proclaim a big blessing that actually turns out to be um, uh, more prophetic than they probably knew at that time. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. 
May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The witnesses pray that this Moabite Ruth would be like one of the matriarchs of the nation. That she might be like Rachel and Leah, who bore the 12 sons who wound up to be the 12 tribes of Israel. They pray that Ruth might bear children to shape the nation. And we'll see that they're more right than they probably imagined. Then the people go on to pray that Boaz's house would be like the house of Perez, who was born to Tamar and to Judah. You can read more about Tamar and Judah in Genesis 38, but as a quick summary, Tamar was also a foreign woman. She was a Canaanite whose husband named Er died, leaving her childless. One of Er's brothers, Onan, mistreated Tamar, and Onan's poor treatment along with her father-in-law's lies led Tamar to trick her father-in-law into having sex with her so that she could have an offspring. And one of those children is Perez. The story's crazy. Again, you can read more about that in Genesis 38. But the primary point of this, this blessing for Ruth is that she would turn out like Tamar. That a foreign Moabite woman, Ruth, would turn out like the foreign Canaanite woman who went on to bear a child. And again, the witnesses, witnesses have no idea how prophetic their blessing ends up being. And this is where the first scene ends. And before we move on, it would be good to consider what we have learned from this passage. We learn that God's providence shines forth even in the darkest of days. We've seen God's providence at work in the book of Ruth in chapter 1, verse 6, as he graciously provides relief for the famine in Bethlehem. We saw God providentially at work in chapter 2 of Ruth, verse 3, as he providentially arranged for Ruth to happen to come to the field of Boaz. And now we see that God is providentially at work as he arranges for Mr. So-and-so to just happen to be walking by the gate as Boaz is, is there in chapter 4. We see that God providentially works, uh, is at work as, he, as Boaz is, redeems Ruth in chapter 4 and marries her. And we see that God, we will see that God is providentially at work as we'll see that the line of David comes about from this whole story of Ruth. Just as a definition, God's providence is, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. The book of Ruth teaches us that the, about the reality that God's providence is real even in the darkest of times. That's what we see here as Ruth is finally redeemed. That through all the suffering and all the darkness that Ruth faced, through all the pain, uh, throughout all the, of her years of turmoil, God was working. And the author intends for us to read this story about how a Moabite woman named Ruth uh, was taken care of and providentially provided for by God and to see how uh, it's intended to give us hope right now that the same God is working right now. The doctrine of providence is not just a theological concept that we should mentally assent to. It's also a treasured truth that impacts the way that you and I live today. 
So just two applications of how providence should impact us today, should apply to our lives. First, providence produces patience. God isn't just writing the biggest story of all history. He's also writing each of our little stories. And for all those who are in Christ, your story is a good story. There's no one in all of history who has trusted God and regretted that they did. No one. Our God is a God who works all things for the good of those who love him. He did it in the life of of Joseph in Genesis. He did it in the life of Ruth and Naomi. He did it in in us seeing the death of Christ, which he used to bring salvation to to all who believe in him. Uh, And he is doing it today. So today, trust that God is in control. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what chapter of life you're in right now. Maybe you're in the midst of a dark time. Maybe you feel like you can barely get out of bed in the morning. And that life has been terrible for years. If that's you, look at Ruth. Ruth trusted God and was not put to shame. Be assured that if you trust God, you will not be put to shame. Have patience in God's providence. Do not lose hope. Be patient. God is writing your story and it's a good story. The second way that providence applies to us is that providence produces thankfulness. Providence produces thankfulness to God when things are going good. Maybe you're here and you're not in the midst of a dark time. Things are actually going really good by God's grace. Brother or sister, if that's you, you should think that you should thank God for providentially arranging your life to be going good right now. Nothing happens by chance. Everything good is from the Lord. And so recount this week with a friend after church today. Recount the, the blessings that God has given you this week. Recount his, his, uh, his goodness to you and praise him for it. Thank him for it. Don't just talk that up to, oh, it's a slow season at work or all my hard work is finally paying off. No, this is the providence of God. So the book of Ruth teaches us that God is providentially at work in our lives. But it also teaches us that God is at work for our good and for his glory. And that's what we see in verses 13 to 17, as we move on to point number two, trust that God is at work for our good and his glory. Look again at verses 13 to 17 and read it with me. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Verses 1 to 12 are, uh, recount the detailed, minute-by-minute, play-by-play actions of Boaz's redemption uh, plan and, and, and marriage for Ruth. But in verse 13, we take a strange nine-month, at least nine-month, gap. The author is fast-forwarding us to the next important scene of the story, and it's the scene that centers on Ruth having a child. 
And again, we, we uh, wish we had more details. We don't know, did uh, Boaz bust the move on the dance floor when the Cupid Shuffle came on? We don't know what, where their wedding was, all the location, right? But we do know the author is picking our eyes back up to the important points of the story, and it centers on this child. And this is important because up to this point, Ruth has been uh, married before. She was married to Malan for 10 years, and she had not had a child. So even though she got married, there was definitely not the promise of an offspring, of a child. But look at verse 13. It says, and the Lord gave her conception. This child has a divine origin. This child was born from God. Keeping a similar pattern in the Bible of women who were unable to conceive apart from the Lord intervening, uh, and these children all went on to shape the nation. Women like Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel and Hannah, all of these women struggled to have children, and all their children went on to have profound impacts on the nation. And now we're left thinking if, if Ruth's offspring might be cut from the same cloth as them. And in verses 14 to 16, we're going to see Naomi's restoration. The women in, uh, in verse 14 are celebrating the birth of a son, but they're not congratulating or celebrating Ruth. They're celebrating and rejoicing with Naomi. And it's striking to us that these women are congratulating her. It's not because the author doesn't know who gave birth to this son. It's because the narrator is highlighting for us that God is restoring Naomi. That God is good and that he can be trusted. Up to this point, Naomi has had a rough life. She even says in Ruth 121, I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. And as hearers of this story, we're asking, God, do you see this? Do you, are, are you going to do anything? Are, can, you, can you help Naomi? But we see here that God is good. He's trustworthy, and he does care about Naomi. In verse 14, we see that the child is actually going to be Naomi's redeemer. Verse 14 says, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So this is a different redeemer than Boaz. This child is the redeemer. And this redeemer is going to, uh, is going to redeem Naomi because he's going to nourish her. He's going to physically care for her in her old age. But also, this child will go on to fulfill a role of redemption outside of himself. He's going to go, up, uh, go on to play a part in the grand story of redemption through his offspring. That's why his name is going to be renowned in Israel. And now the picture in Ruth 4 is that Naomi's empty arms, she, went away, she, came, uh, she has been brought back empty, have been filled up by a little baby boy, a grandson. And she is his nurse. And I think that nurse probably means that she was his caretaker or nanny, not necessarily his, his wet nurse. Uh, but again, the, the point of this is that her life is full with the hope of redemption. And then the women praise Ruth in verse 15 by saying that Ruth is worth more to, uh, to Naomi than seven sons. The number seven is significant because it's the number of wholeness or completion. And Ruth is valuable to her because of her loyal love that she shows to Naomi. Just as God has shown loyal love to Naomi, you see that God uh, has not left her alone. He is good to her, 
and her life has turned from bitter to sweet. At this point, we should pause and ask ourselves why the author focuses our eyes on this. The author recounts Naomi's life so that the original readers and all of us here today would, uh, that are hearing God's word would see that God is good, even if we may not be able to see it right now. And this is not just for us to know intellectually that God is good, but it's to know deep down in our bones that God is good. Everything he does is good. God's goodness means that for those who are in Christ, he's always working together, uh, everything together for our good. He's always loving towards us and plotting for our joy. That means that we don't have a love-hate relationship with God. It's not that we go from being in his good graces for reading our Bible this morning to being in his bad graces for telling a lie uh, tonight and then tomorrow we're, we're blacklisted. That's not how God's goodness works. No, in Christ, all the wrath that you and I deserved was poured out on Jesus, and now he intends good for us. And this should give us hope for the future. Hope. We can look to tomorrow, to next week, to next month, to next year with hope, because God is planning for our good if we are in Christ. He's planning for your spiritual well-being. We may not presently understand why God has us going through certain challenges, and we might never know, but we know that our God works all things together for good, and that one day the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, will, bring, will come and make all things new, when pain and death will be no more, and so our hope is in that final day when Jesus will come back and we'll be with him forever. And so we've seen God's goodness to Naomi, and at this point we're ready for the end of the story, right? If Ruth were a movie, verse 16 is basically the end of the movie. You can kind of see that the tension in the story has been resolved because Ruth and Boaz are married. Uh, Naomi has a cute grandson. She's getting the pictures taken of him and, uh, and uh, has been redeemed as well. And everyone fades into the distance, and you can just see this happy family just going along, taking pictures. We read verse 16, and we're basically at the closing credits. But have you ever gone to a movie theater and, and seen a movie that has an after, uh, after the closing scene scene? Something that comes along and it revolutionizes your understanding of what's happening. That's what verse 17 is. You see, as we're getting to the end of this heartwarming story, verse 17 comes and adds to this story about, and teaches us about what this book and about what uh, the book of the Bible is about. Look at verse 17 with me. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of, who is it? David. What a shock! No way! Who would have seen that David was coming from these random people, uh, these, this Moabite Ruth and this bitter old woman, Naomi? Who could have guessed one of the most famous kings in Israel's history came from this line? No way, God. And at this point, we see more of why the book of Ruth was written. The book of Ruth, Ruth was written, written a couple of hundred years after the time of the judges. We know this because the author expects everyone reading this to know who David is. And so why is the author writing Ruth? He writes to comfort those around him. And to assure them that God is writing a grand story of redemption. Even in the darkest of days, God is working. 
He was at work in the time of Ruth, in the time of the judges, to bring about the great king of Israel, and nobody would have ever seen it coming. The author's intended audience would take great confidence as seeing, in seeing as uh, Ephesians 3.10 refers to the manifold wisdom of God, which brought about King David from the line of the Moabite Ruth and this bitter old Naomi. God is writing a bigger story. And this teaches us that God is working across all of history for his glory. We must never limit God's purposes. We must not limit God to working right here in me on one thing right now. No. God's plans weave across the generations. He is always working in many of our lives, in many ways, all for his glory. Now, don't get me wrong, it's true that God is intimately involved in all of our lives. We just talked about providence. But as theologian Sinclair Ferguson helpfully points out, God's providential purposes, which include me, do not center on me. As though what he is doing in me could be isolated from everything else he is doing. No, God is doing millions and billions of things right now, and we're only aware of a few of them. And on this note, the book of Ruth concludes with a genealogy. And now some of our minds are prone to wander and fall asleep uh, when we read genealogies, but genealogies, genealogies are incredibly important. And this genealogy in particular shows us that the ultimate point of the book uh, of Ruth is to point us to the grand story of redemption. Look at verses 18 to 22 with me as we enter point number three, hope in the grand story of redemption. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So the book of Ruth ends with a genealogy. And I'm, I'm not going to go in-depth into who these people are in the genealogy, most of these people, because uh, the, the, the point of it, the peak, is that it ends with David. And you can see the author, the, the, that is true because the author ends verse 17 and verse 22 with David. It's, it's the highlight of the book. And the rest of the people are really not that well known outside of these, these verses. Uh, but again, the highlight is that King David is coming. And this genealogy is somewhat like a, a family tree would be today. So I don't know if you've done, for example, the, those Ancestry.com uh, or what are the other ones, 23andMe, or all these other uh, DNA testing and ancestry testing to see where your, where your family tree has come from. Uh, but this is David's family tree. This is David's Ancestry.com. And it's important to note that the Bible picks up on this family tree in another book of the Bible. Only this time there's some, someone bigger than King David. Look with me, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verses 3 to 6 if you're able. Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew 1.1, we see that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then look with me at verses 3 to 6 of Matthew 1. We're going to see that the same ten names that have been listed in Ruth 4 are listed here again. Verse 3 says, And Judah the father of Perez, and, uh, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, 
and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. So Matthew picks up on this genealogy, and he uses, again, the same ten names, but he doesn't stop at David. Instead, this genealogy stops in verse 16 of Matthew 1, when it ends with who? Jesus. Amen. You see, David was pointing to the better king, Jesus. He's the cornerstone of all history. And God is, was working in the days of the judges, through Ruth the Moabite and the bitter old Naomi, to bring about the great king, David, who ultimately points us forward to King Jesus. And so let's put this family tree together. If there was no Naomi, if she hadn't gone to Moab, then she wouldn't have met Ruth. If there was no Ruth, she wouldn't have met and married Boaz. If Boaz didn't meet uh, or didn't marry Ruth, then there would be no Obed. If there was no Obed, there's no Jesse. If there's no Jesse, there's no David. And no David means no Jesus. This is amazing. Look at the manifold wisdom of God. His purposes for Ruth would take hundreds of years to come true. His, his ultimate goal for Ruth's life. And this helps us to explain why God's purposes in our lives often feel so messy. It's because they may not find their fulfillment for hundreds of years. God is the sovereign author of history. And even though it's cheesy, guys, uh, maybe you know what I'm about to say. It's true that history is really his story. Amen. It's true. That really is true. God is the author of history. But up to this point, we're, we are left wondering why God did all this, why he worked so much in order to bring this Moabite woman named Ruth and put her ultimately in the line of King Jesus. Well, friends, the answer to that question is because God is pointing us to the truth that the Davidic line has implications for the nations. Ruth was not a Jew, and God is showing us his heart for all the nations, his desire for people from every tribe and tongue to come to know him. Jesus comes from Moabite ancestry. The nations are in his DNA, so to speak. Jesus shed his blood for the nations because the blood of the nations was running through his veins. As Revelation 5.9 says, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The nations will come to find refuge under the God of Israel, just as Ruth did in Ruth 2.12. God has always planned to redeem people from Moab and from Malaysia and from America and to the ends of the earth. The gospel is available to all who would come. And Jesus says, come to me, whoever you are and wherever you are, uh, wherever you're from, no matter your background, you can find redemption here. And maybe you're here today and you long to know how you can find redemption like Ruth did. You long to know this providential God. And you long to have hope in the midst of your suffering. Friend, if that's you, I would plead with you to come to faith in Jesus today. The Bible teaches that, that all of us were created by God with a purpose, which was to enjoy God and to glorify him forever. But we willfully rejected this purpose. This rejection is called sin. And sin has tainted us to the core of our being. It's the problem that we cannot fix. 
And this resulted in us wanting nothing to do with God, being alienated from him. We disobeyed him and are deserving of death. But God has been working throughout all of human history to bring to himself people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. He's working to redeem the most broken of sinners, the vilest of people, and the people who have no hope. He's working to redeem you. And Jesus offers you redemption today if you would trust in him, if you would turn from your sins and turn towards him and call upon him as Lord. He promises to redeem you from your greatest need, which is your slavery to your sin. And he promises that if you confess with your lips and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved from your sins forever, and you'll be in glory with him. Friend, if you're considering making that decision for the first time today, would you please talk to the pastors at any of the doors as the service closes? Or talk to any member of NCBC who's got a big smile around you. We would love to talk with you more about Jesus. So going back to the book of Ruth, as we, as we close, the book of Ruth teaches us that, with, uh, again, with the help of Matthew 1, that God has always been working to bring about redemption to his people, even in the midst of the darkest of times. And he is still working today. And one day soon, Jesus will come again. And Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4 tells us what he will do. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He will wipe away every tear, and pain shall be no more. All who trust in Jesus will find that final redemption in him. All your suffering will one day stop, because Jesus is coming again. Brothers and sisters, our, our life falls within the grand story of redemption, and it's a good story. It's the best story. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, in whom we have hope and restoration and redemption. We pray that you would cause us all to look to that final day when pain will be no more and we will be with you forever in glory. In Jesus' name, amen.